a congregational meeting this Sunday immediately following the morning service. So um, if you're not a member, you're welcome to come and find out about the business of the church. If you are a member, I think there's two things we vote for approval on, and uh, so that's important on on uh, this Sunday. Also, um, let me see, the Chafer Conference is coming up in a little over a month, so be prepared to sign up to volunteer. We need help across the board on many different things during the day. On those days, March 12th to 14th, be in prayer for uh, security uh, during that during that time and for preparation for all of the uh, all of the speakers. Uh, update on Tommy Ice. He continues to uh, struggle a little bit to get his oxygen levels up and a few other things that are going on that aren't positive. So uh, he's still in ICU, and before they can really start a lot of the physical therapy and other things like that, he's got to get his breathing resolved and oxygen levels resolved, things like that. So please pray that they can uh, figure that out and they can they can get these things handled. Uh, also, um, um, just pray for I, every day. I hear more people in the congregation getting sick, getting colds, getting flu. Uh, things like that. So uh, be sure to be in prayer for one another in those particular in those particular areas. I can't think. Anybody? Can y'all think of another announcement? Anything else? I think that's what two the two trips. Yeah, the, they're 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 coming along. I've been doing some additional research. Uh, one of the things I hope to do is take us down to Hebron. I'll show you a video. Uh, this coming Tuesday night when we're back in Second Samuel that I saw the other day that relates to where we are in Second Samuel. But uh, I've never taken a group down to Hebron. There's some neat things to see in, in Judea and down that way, so we're going to do that. So that's going to be uh, really neat. So we do have room on uh, that trip. We're about to close out the uh, Washington, D.C. trip, though, because I think we have, uh, we're just about maxed out there. So... Um, that if you're going to go on that, you've got about 24 hours to finalize, make up your mind, make a decision, and and uh, get off the dime. So that's that's where we are. That's going to be a great trip as well. All right. How shall young um, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding? In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, One of the reasons it's good to have silent prayer and to confess sin before you get started is during silent prayer, there's always four or five people who slip in during the silent prayer, uh, especially tonight because I can tell several were already, always, uh, already uh, uh, jammed up by all that traffic that's out there. So we'll bow our heads together and uh, confess sin if necessary, and then we'll be prepared for our study this evening. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful that we can come to you, that you're an ever-present help in time of need, that we're to cast all our cares upon you because you care for us, and that we are to rest in you. And Father, we're thankful for the fact that we can come to you in prayer. We especially remember uh, Tommy and Janice, the family. We pray for his body's response to uh, what the doctors are doing, that it will uh, heal, that it will recover that he'll be able to uh, breathe better, deeply, get his oxygen levels up, and that that you'll give the doctors wisdom in what they can do to help improve the situation. And we look forward to having him turn a corner tomorrow. Father, we're thankful for so many across the world who are praying for him. And, Father, we pray that you would 
uh, answer those prayers. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might uh, take the time to think about ourselves, think about our thinking, think about our own sin natures, not always pleasant. Think about what is really going on in our lives and what our focal point is in living. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with our study tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing our study. And as we look at 1 Peter, I want you to be uh, thinking about the battle that is being talked about here in First Peter. And I'm going back and going to mention some things related to some of what we've already studied. But Peter makes an issue out of this battle that we have as lust wars against the soul. And that is a, a critical description. We live in a world today when the doctrine of spiritual warfare has been perverted by a lot of false teaching tele-evangelists who interpret it as battles with spirits. That is not what the Bible talks about, spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is the battle that goes on in your head related to your mind and your volition throughout every single day as we have to make decisions on whether or not we're going to apply the Word of God in each situation. And the primary source of temptation doesn't come from outside of us. The primary problem is our own sin nature and coming to understand that. And we've been talking about the sin nature the last lesson or two in First Peter. We've been talking about its impact on the civil war that develops in Israel in Second Samuel chapters 2 through 4. We're talking about the sin nature as it's manifest in the religious arrogance of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the chief priests and scribes in Israel as it culminates in this outpouring of hatred and anger and bile that culminates in the horrific execution of Jesus on Golgotha at the crucifixion. And the other night, I don't know if any of you all after Bible class got a chance to go home and watch the State of the Union and all of the garbage that is put out. Uh, I don't care whether you like Donald Trump as president or dislike him. There is something about civil discourse that is important, and it is related to self-discipline and self-restraint in good manners and being able to show respect for people even when you don't agree with people. And when you have leaders in a nation who sit like a bunch of stone statues and sit on their hands, now, as much as most conservatives and Republicans despise the policies of President Obama, you never saw that kind of childishness. You never saw that kind of idiocy going on. But it reminded me, this is what evil does when they've rejected authority. And that's what's going on. It's a rejection of authority. And this is just gives us just a hint of a picture of what was going on with the religious leaders in Jerusalem when when they were so angry with Jesus. They made up all kinds of things about Jesus only because they hated what he ultimately stood for. And this is their, what happens when the sin nature is allowed to go unrestrained, out of control, and when arrogance rules. And so we're going to think about that a little bit more as we go through, because whether the lust pattern is power lust, approbation lust, sex lust, some sort of uh, pleasure lust, uh, lust is the motivator of the sin nature, and lust wars against the soul. And it destroys the soul if it's not restrained through either just basic morality and self-control or through spirituality. We'll talk about those options, those differences as we go along. And that the only recovery, the only hope of recovery is to, first of all, be regenerate, and second, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the sin nature just runs amok and reigns supreme. So to put us back in the context of 1 Peter 4, at the beginning uh, Peter says, of this chapter, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, 
Jesus Christ's undeserved suffering is the model, the pattern that we are to reflect on when we find ourselves in any circumstances, any circumstance where we believe that we are being undeservedly targeted, unjustly accused, that we are the victims of anything that we think is undeserved. It may be deserved, but we think it's undeserved. And so Christ is a pattern for how we are to handle that kind of suffering with a relaxed mental attitude, with humility, with orientation to God and the faith rest deal, trusting in the power of God and trusting in the scriptures. And we're to arm ourselves, a military term, this is a battle, it's spiritual warfare, we're to arm ourselves with that mentality. Now, some people, when they hear me say that, think, I can't do that. So you're calling God a liar. Of course you can do that. You can do that in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And every one of us can do that because God says we can. He's not going to ask us to do something he hasn't supplied us with the ability to do. It's just a matter of volition. And and that's what the issue here is with the same mind. All of this, as I pointed out in our past study, has to do with having the kind of resolve, the focal point that Jesus has, that 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 set mindset, that that resolution that no matter what happens, this is the course I'm going to take. And that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, that's why a lot of people don't get very successful at exercise plans and diets or trying to quit smoking or any number of other things that I could illustrate with. It's because we don't set our mind on something. And yet over and over again, this is what the Scripture says that we're to do. Uh, this whole section goes back to 318 and builds on that illustration of Christ's suffering. We're having that same mind. This is emphasized again and again, as I've pointed out. Uh, we're to <clears throat> renew our mind. That's the only hope, is to replace the garbage in the soul with the truth, the golden, pure truth of the Word of God. And so we have this emphasis, as I pointed out, on thinking in Romans 12.2, Romans 12.3, Philippians 4.8, using different words, but all related to reasoning, to ration, rational thought, to logical thought, to putting under control our emotions. And when I look at how a number of people on both sides of the aisle are reacting, it's just they're all emotionally out of control. They've got emotional diarrhea, and it's got to work its way out through their tweets and through rants on Facebook and all of these other things because they're just so filled with frustration. They have no idea how to use the Word of God to calm everything down and to get a grip on reality. So the point is that we're not supposed to live on the basis of these lust patterns that generate the mental attitude sins and the sins of the tongue and the sins uh, and the overt sins. We are not to live the rest of our time in the flesh. So we, the way we do it is we adopt that resolution mentality. We have that mental attitude that Jesus has, and it just starts with basic steps. Sometimes you just have to start with baby steps. And so I pointed out in 1 Peter 4.2, we're not to live the rest of our time in the flesh, that is, in our mortal body, for the lusts of men. We don't live to feed our lust pattern because, as Peter has already said in 1 Peter 2.11, it's these lusts that war against the soul. That's spiritual warfare. It's not this, I'm going to kick Satan out of, off the stage or I'm going to cast a demon out of somebody. It's not this kind of, of erroneous, distorted, uh, um, demon, demonic fighting kind of thing that you see often in these uh, particular healing ministries and deliverance ministries. And it's, it's a sort of a uh, pagan, occult, psychobabble blend that is just toxic to real Christianity. And yet this has dominated for at least the last 25 or 30 years. One of the reasons that Tommy and I wrote our book on spiritual warfare uh, back in, in uh, 1990. And so to understand this, we have to understand the dynamic of this sin nature. And it produces these lust patterns. 
And part of the lust that I've identified, I'll go through more in a minute, uh, power lust, we see that on display. I, I, there are, that, that has run amok in the halls of legislatures and city governments and state governments in this, in this nation because there's no spiritual integrity. When you don't have a spiritual integrity, when you don't have men and women whose souls are fortified with the truth of God's word, then all they can live for is their own self-absorbed pleasures one way or the other. And it's sad, but it's not confined to Congress. It's not confined to City Hall. It, it, It expands. It's eaten up our culture. You find it in every classroom, whether it's in kindergarten or whether it's in graduate schools. You find it in medical schools. You find it in hospitals. You find it in businesses, in corporate uh, environments. It's everywhere. The reason that we have this nasty uh, polarization in Congress that we all see is because the culture's polarized, because the problem is the people. It's not the government. The government just reflects where we are. We're elect people just like us. And the result is that that until we see the biblical solution, there really is no hope. Now, we see flashes of hope, but we don't see the kind of character, the kind of real spiritual focus and stability that we had in our founding fathers and that we had in many, many other leaders down through the history of our, our nation. Instead, what we see is people who are controlled by these these lust patterns, power lust, approbation lust, all of these things. Making a list over here, we have power lust. Part of approbation lust is social status. We want to be liked by people. We want to be recognized by people. We want to be elevated. Some people blow this way out of proportion, and they want to be have celebrity status. They want to go to Hollywood. They want to be stars, and then they use that to... Uh, develop some sort of platform to speak out against whatever they think the ills of society are. And this isn't new, but it's reached a level of exposure today that is just toxic to our culture. And, and that's what they are. They are merchants of poison. And it's a poison that comes out of their mouth. The, the tongue is wicked and evil, James chapter 3, and they can't tame it. And it's not restricted to the tongue anymore because most of the time it operates on the basis of your two thumbs as you're texting out your various messages. And this is a, we need to have a new category here, the sins of the tongue and the sins of the thumb. It has a nice alliteration, doesn't it? So we have this desire for social, that if we get out there and we, uh, express all of our opinions so the world can see them that somehow that gets us recognition. That's just pure existentialism. We're living for the moment that somehow doing something like that validates our existence. And that's what existentialism is. It says there's no real meaning in life, so the only way we can have meaning is by doing something that somehow for just a moment or two sort of explodes on the scene of the world and there's some something that seems to validate our existence. That's existentialism. It's because without the Bible, without understanding you're created in the image and the likeness of God, that God has a glorious purpose for our life. That, that, but that involves not being self-absorbed, but God-absorbed. That until we have that, then it's just pure self-destruction that feeds upon itself. You have people who are just absolutely absorbed with pleasure lust. We have this opioid uh, problem in this country, this epidemic. Now, part of that is generated because they're, they've been overprescribed for pain medication. But part of it is because we have a culture that is seeking anything they can to escape the meaninglessness. See, we're back to that whole idea of meaning and value and purpose again that only comes from recognizing that we're in the image and likeness of God with a divine destiny. But when we reject the existence of God, we reject the Bible, 
then life is pretty nasty, and we reject what the Bible says about sin and depravity of sin and the corruption of sin, and so we can't explain the horrible realities. And a lot of people grow up in horrible realities. They grow up in families that where the parents are divorced. They grow up in families where there's uh, abuse, there's physical abuse, there's emotional abuse. They are ignored by their parents. They're not valued. The parents are too busy seeking their social status and power and approbation to take care of their kids. And so the only way that they can deaden the soul pain is through some kind of drugs. And so we see this massive movement towards the legalization of marijuana. We see massive movements uh, uh, toward heroin and uh, and all kinds of other crack and cocaine and all of these other drugs. But it's not limited to those things. You can turn to alcohol, which is well-known, or you can turn to food, which is always a problem that is rarely talked about. One of the classic examples of this was two great preachers riding on a train together about 150 years ago. And they were Dwight Moody, who was a great evangelist and founder of Moody Bible Institute, which, by the way, you need to pray for. Moody Bible Institute is going through internal fragmentation right now. They had to close a campus in Spokane. They had to close a campus in Pasadena, California. They fired about, I've heard, between 30 and 40 faculty members. Uh, just They just had to let them go because they couldn't afford it because they're going through massive financial challenges. But at the root of the money drying up is because the administration hasn't been holding the faculty's feet to the fire in terms of doctrinal integrity. And it's really difficult today because you get faculty members on these schools that are eaten up with postmodernism, and they've rejected the idea of what's called the, uh, that, uh, that truth is a correspondence to reality view. And so they no longer believe in an absolute objective truth. And they believe that truth is relative, relative to culture, relative to an individual. And once you do that, then when you are saying you believe in the tr- absolute truth of Scripture and you believe in the uh, inerrancy of Scripture, your view of truth is an errant view of tr- and relativistic view of truth because you're approaching it from a worldview that has rejected uh, a, a, a correspondence to reality view of truth. And this has happened with a number... Not a huge number, but a few faculty members. In fact, one faculty member has been quoted as saying that that it's actually a joke now uh, that for a hundred years Moody has been the bastion of truth, and now when a teacher professor says that, the students laugh because it's not anymore, and that's sad. And recently, the board of trustees met. And I always have a lot of skepticism about this, and they asked for the president of Moody to resign. Um, They just announced that they had accepted their resignations, but we know what that means, that the chief operating officer and I believe the chief media officer were all asked uh, to turn in their resignation, that they needed a new season of leadership. And if you read the letters, and I get copies of all the letters that go out to the alumni uh, I know people who are alumni, uh, alumnuses of uh, of Moody, and they send me this information. There's also a few people who ha- who blog about this, who are uh, uh, alumnuses of uh, of Moody, and um, all these letters are really vague. My question is: Are they letting these people go because? They're not raising enough money, and they're blaming the administration for a an income problem. And some things are said about some inequities, and I'm not sure I agree with I think some people get a little um, legalistic about how money is handled in Christian organizations in some situations. And... Um, but I'm not sure that's really the issue. The issue I want to hear about is why do you have faculty members that sign a doctrinal statement that says they believe in a pre-trib rapture when they don't believe in a pre-trib rapture? Say they believe in dispensationalism when they don't believe in dispensationalism. Say they believe in inerrancy of Scripture when they don't believe in inerrancy of Scripture. And that's not the only Christian, well-known Christian organization on a northern trajectory from Houston that has this 
identical problem and at this other institution that's been going on since I was a student some 40 years ago. We have a lack of integrity in leadership because people do not believe in the integrity, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture. They just give it lip service. We have too many Christian leaders who are concerned about their uh, academic profession of, and of scholarship in the academic community, and so they have an academic lust. That's a manifestation of their approbation lust. They want to be recognized as great Bible scholars, and they've gotten PhDs here and PhDs there, and there's nothing wrong with that unless your motivation's wrong. And if you're motivated by arrogance and uh, self-absorption and approbation lust, then you're going to have problems. And, of course, we always have the problems of sex lust. And when you live in a permissive society, the more we roll back the boundaries on sex and take it away from the the biblical role of uh, sex between couples that are married and of opposite genders... Once you remove that and you begin to legitimize it, whenever you say something's legal or legitimate, people are going to let their sin nature run amok in that direction. You start legalizing marijuana, then you're going to find all kinds of people who never would have thought about marijuana before. Now they're going to indulge to their own detriment. And and this is true in all these other areas. You have people when homosexuality was illegal and there were penalties, That prevented people from exploring that dark side of their sin nature for the most part. And now, once you legalize it, then they're going to not only explore it, they're going to exploit it. And it's going to destroy their soul. And so the more and more we become this antinomian society in many ways, we're destroying the character of our, of our citizens, the character of the nation, the quality of the future, because their, their souls are eaten up. They've lost the war, and the soul, their souls are destroyed by their lust patterns. Love of money. Nothing wrong with money. It's the distorted love of money, materialism lust. And they use that materialism lust and the acquisition of money and then the acquisition of power in order to... Uh, exploit their own sin nature. This is what we've seen with all these uh, sexual abuse situations that are taking place in Hollywood, a, a culture that is lives where people live a lot of the time in a fantasy world as actors and actresses. And some of them can do that because they're mentally stable and others can't do that. They're not mentally stable and they are prone, very prone to being taken advantage of because they're uh, personalities are of a somewhat fragile nature, and they're uh, afraid of whatever the consequences might be, so they succumb. And f- fortunately, a lot of this is being exposed right now. I think some of it may just be fraudulent, but it is, it, it's just a breakdown of the culture because we've let these lust patterns go. Nobody knows how to control it anymore because without the Bible, and the biblical moral absolutes of the Judeo-Christian heritage, then it just runs amok and it becomes self-destructive. So there's money lust, and there's lust for the things that money could buy. And this is the idolatry of materialism and greed in Colossians 3.5, that materialism lust, uh, covetousness, as it's translated in the New King James Version, or greed in the New American Standard, is idolatry. It's worshiping another god. The fact is, when you're giving vent to your, or free reign to your lust patterns, that's what you're worshiping. You're worshiping an idol that you've created in terms of your lust. You're saying that, that those things you're lusting for are the only thing that can give your life meaning and value and purpose. Only God can give our lives meaning and value and purpose. Only that intimate relationship with Him, that daily walk, defines our meaning and purpose and value. And when we look for it somewhere else, that's idolatry. And that's just as bad as any overt idolatry. And in our culture, we're practicing the same things that they did in the fertility religions, but we're just doing it under other guises. There's, I've added a new category, social justice lust. You didn't realize that was a lust, did you? 
Well, it is. It's a lust for what other people have worked and earned for to be given and have somebody else redistribute it to other people who have not worked for it or earned it. That's what communism is. It's just another form of idolatry. It's a false religion. Social justice is a false religion, and it is a false construct. It is not the only way to have justice in society, but social justice must come out of the framework of the divine institutions of Scripture. Otherwise, it always leads to social slavery, and that's what has happened time and time again, but in the arrogance of our present culture, we have people who think that, oh, that's not going to be true for us. We're going to be different. We're so much more educated and sophisticated and knowledgeable. We're so much more advanced that that won't destroy us like it destroyed every other culture. Recently, I like to watch uh, American Heroes Channel. I know some of you probably like that, and I like to watch all the series on World War One and World War Two and all the different things that went on in the early part of the 20th century. And all of that, the horrors of the battlefield that took place there are the, in many ways, the results of a lot of things that were going on ideologically in the culture that most people really don't understand. Everything from the way uh, monetary policy was handled, which gave uh, rise to ways in which these wars could be uh, funded and financed, to the rise of anti-Semitism, to uh, illegitimate forms of nationalism, which was just uh, arrogance and power lust run amok at a national or international level, all of these different kinds of things. But, but this last week, I've got it set, my recorder set to record these things. There's a series, they call it, um, um, now the name escapes me, but it was about Stalin, Apocalypse. Uh, apocalypse World War One and Apocalypse Hitler and now Apocalypse Stalin. I've read a lot about Stalin, and you want to know a real cultural hatred for somebody? Go to Ukraine and talk to Ukrainians about Stalin. In 1932, 1933, Stalin uh, was dealing with a famine in Russia, and he sent the the Red Army down into Ukraine and basically swept up every grain of wheat and took it back to feed the starving masses in Russia, and between 5 and 6 million Ukrainians starved to death that winter. That's why when the Nazis invaded uh, Ukraine in uh, 1941, so many Ukrainians went over to the Nazi side because they hated the Russians. And, And that was just one of numerous examples of Stalin's uh, violence, and, and it's estimated that he was responsible for the murder of between 50 and 60 million Russians, and that's not counting the approximately 30 million that were killed in World War II. I mean, this guy was just vile, but that's communism. And Lenin w- just died young, so he didn't kill as many. Lenin was just as bad. Communism is evil and vile. Castro, all of these Marxists, and yet we have... Uh, people like Colin Kaepernick coming out, and he's got his little Black Lives Matter uh, baseball cap on, or he's wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt, and he has no idea what this means. These people, these things represent horrors in those cultures and those countries. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of murders. So social justice lust is a definite lust, and it's a desire to to steal from those who have earned something and give it to those who haven't. We could call it Robin Hood lust because that's what it is, but we've romanticized Robin Hood so much that it's just nauseating. Um, it's, uh, It's a manifestation of the idea that you're trying to fix or repair the world. The world can't be repaired because the problem is sin. Now, you can try to improve the world. There's nothing wrong with that. But fixing it or repairing it is just arrogance. And that has an affinity for social justice and Marxism. They go together. You have criminal lust, revenge lust, and vindictiveness, which we've studied, which we studied on Tuesday night in Revenge Motivation. All of that is in your little sin nature. There's not one person here who doesn't have a sin nature capable 
of all these horrible things that I've talked about, what makes the difference? The difference should be that relationship with the Lord. So when we look at these lusts that war against the soul, first of all, we have to understand in terms of your own lust patterns that lusts are dangerous because they distract the mind from the focus of learning and applying doctrine. How many people would be here tonight if it weren't for the fact that they are somewhere else or they've so arranged their priorities in life that they're feeding a lust pattern instead of being in Bible class. Now, it may not be something horrible. It may be something that is relatively socially acceptable, and they're working late or they're uh, let themselves be pressured into working a 60 or 70 hour uh, job thinking they need all of the things that come from that, but it ultimately comes back to some kind of a lust pattern. And so they've arranged the priorities of their life that way. Now, not, that's not true for everybody who works 60 or 70, 80 hours a week. I know a lot of pastors who do just because that's the nature of the animal. There are uh, heart surgeons that work that. There are uh, people in other positions in life that that just goes with the responsibilities. But that's not necessarily a result of lust patterns. But there are many who are giving, they, they order their lives in order to feed that which they want. That's another way of talking about lust. And they're going to do what they want and not what they ought. And so instead of being here in Bible class, they don't have time for it because they're too busy doing what they want instead of what they ought to do. So they're distracted from the focus on learning and applying the Word of God. And that's the only thing that's going to give us happiness and stability and contentment is the Word. Second, lust creates fantasies. We want those things. Even as a young child of three or four, they have lust patterns, and young children at an early age begin to daydream. And they dream about getting the things that they think will make them happy. And if they give give free reign to those, then that can war against their little souls that are already corrupted by a sin nature. And that's why it's important to have parents who can analyze their children on the basis of the structure of their sin nature so they can target their discipline, their teaching, their training so that their children can learn at a, at a moral level, self-discipline, self-control, how to, anger, how to handle anger, how to handle disappointment, how to handle loss. That's where competition comes in. That's where sports comes in, a lot of things like that. And it's great opportunities for parents to use those as teaching opportunities. And then you can use those as ways to segue into teaching uh, spiritual truth and bringing them to a point of, look, this is a sin. You get angry and you hit your sister. That's wrong. That's angry. Where does that sin come from? What do you need to do afterwards? Well, how do we ultimately have forgiveness? How do we ultimately have uh, reconciliation? And then you can go to the cross and talk, teach them about the gospel. Well, lust creates various fantasies about how we can get that fulfillment. And there's daydreaming, and we all do that to one degree or another. We think about what we want and how we're going to get it and what we're going to do, and it characterizes our thinking as we grow up in elementary school and go through adolescence and those formative teenage years, which are just, you know, at the very center center of, of uh, you know, hormonal turbulence and everything else. And if you're not teaching your adolescents how to deal with that with the Word of God, then they're going to come out of it in absolute confusion because they won't know how to deal with that which is attacking and destroying their soul. So lust creates fantasies related to lust fulfillment, and whether those lusts are realized or not, it destroys the objectivity of the mind because when you are living in terms of this fantasy dream world of acquisition and getting your lust satisfied, 
then you're divorced from reality. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse until you're 60, 70, or 80 years old, and you're just you're just uh, totally divorced from reality. You're not satisfied with any of your relationships. You don't have a good marriage. You don't have a good relationship with your kids. You're having problems at work. Uh, all these things are the result of the fact that lusts have fragmented uh, your soul. And it also works... Uh, in terms of creating completely unrealized expectations. Now, third point is that the fantasy relates either to either the dreams, expectations, or the realization of those lusts, or the, excuse me, the fantasy related to either the dreams, expectations, or realization of these lusts begins to destroy the individual's orientation to reality. Psychologists call that neurotic. A neurotic is someone, I've heard it said, a neurotic is someone who builds castles in the air. The psychotic is the one who moves in, and he pays rent to the psychiatrist. And that's really what goes on here, is you get more and more divorced from reality because you don't like the way your life is, so you build all these dreams and expectations related to your lust patterns, and more and more you, you, you get separated from from reality. And fourth, that loss of orientation to reality increases self-absorption and arrogance. Because the more you think about it, the more you dwell on it. The more you dwell on it, the more self-absorbed you are, and that just speeds up the arrogance, part of the arrogance, the whole arrogance cycle uh, of self self-absorption and self-indulgence and self-deception and self-justification and self-deification. All of that cycle just goes and goes and intensifies. Fifth, the corrective from the area comes from the area of strength in the sin nature. If you're not a believer, that's the area of morality. It's morality divorced from spirituality, but in basic morality for any unbeliever, you're teaching values of self-discipline, self-control, uh, how to... Uh, do a lot of things, live life apart from this kind of, of, of dangerous self-absorption. But ultimately, that morality will fail as the solution and the pr- provider of happiness in life because only a relationship with God can do that. Only that God orientation, that walk with God where you realize your purpose, your value, your meaning in as a human being. And so what we do in morality is we build moral substitutes to satisfy less patterns. And that leads, instead of to immoral degeneracy, it leads to moral degeneracy, which is exemplified by the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. They were moral, but they were as degenerate and fragmented in their souls as any uh, licentious libertine. Six, the only ultimate solution is soul transformation. How do you transform your soul? Well, first of all, you have to do it through regeneration. You have to trust in Christ and be regenerated, born again. You have to have a human spirit, which enables your soul to have a relationship to God and to begin to learn and assimilate and apply the principles of the Word of God. And that's called transformation of the mind from Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's the only counter. Any other solution is ultimately a failure and leads to self-destruction. When lusts are unfulfilled, the result is a buildup of frustration over time. You have these unfulfilled lusts. You get more and more frustrated because you can't earn enough money or you can't have enough pleasure or you can't have a stable relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And so you begin to look for alternatives you also build up, and you build up frustration, you build up anger. And think about the anger that is represented in all of these people with their diarrhea of the fingers as they're tweeting and uh, all of these other things and all of this stuff that goes on. Um, and that can lead to depression. A lot of different things can lead to depression, but this is one thing that can lead to depression. Once you realize it will never be fulfilled, you'll never get what you want. It's hopeless. And then you're depressed. You're angry, you're depressed, you're frustrated. 
there's no hope. Fulfilled lust, on the other hand, never satisfies. You want more and more of whatever it is, and then if you don't get it and you've reached the limit in whatever that lust is, then you start looking somewhere else. I remember about 10 years ago, I was out in California at a conference, and I was talking to some of the people out there, and they have, these people had a lot to do with the Hollywood culture. And they said, it's, he said, what people who don't live here never, never hear is how, you know, the sexual perversions of most of the Hollywood stars. It's they are cultivated from a young age, are told how beautiful they are, how wonderful they are. They have, if they're men, they have dozens and dozens of women throwing themselves at them all the time. They don't have any tools to, to turn that away. And so they, they give into it, and then it's not long before regular, regular sexual encounters are normative and boring. And so they have to look somewhere else. So then they start looking into uh, various forms of sadomasochism. They look into uh, homosexual encounters. They look into bestiality. They look into all of these different things because they're just trying to find happiness. And they're looking everywhere. And if that doesn't work, then they uh, compound it with drugs. And then they start looking for all different kinds of drugs. And then they go into rehab for a while. And then they come out of rehab, and then they go into frantic search for happiness in some other direction. And then they want to tell us, go on some sort of crusade, that if we'll just get involved with social justice and do what they say, then it'll solve all the problems in life. It all comes down to lust. Whatever it is, you see the same thing wherever you work. You work in a school. You see it with other school teachers. You'll see it with principals, administration. You work in a church. You'll see it there, certainly. You work in uh, a corporation. You're going to see it all the time. You're going to see it. It's going to manifest itself as gossip and slander uh, in the in the office place. As a believer, once you understand the sin nature... It helps you negotiate a lot of things in life because you know what's really going on in people's lives. Ninth point, and this is the last point, is a contentment, real contentment, stable happiness, a a, a joy that is not an effervescent joy. It's not a bubbly happiness. It's just, you know, I'm happy. I'm content. Whether I have it or I don't have it, it's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, I have joy. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That kind of a contentment only comes not by fulfilling your lusts, but by fulfilling your purpose as a human being. You're created in the image and likeness of God to enjoy a relationship with him. It's like the the Presbyterian catechism, the larger catechism, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And lately I've been talking a lot before some Bible class. I'll say, I hope you've enjoyed your relationship with God today. See, that's what that's talking about. The purpose of the Christian life is to enjoy your intimacy, your relationship with God. And we have to be walking by the Spirit in order to do that. And it's only when we're doing that that we can fulfill our true purpose in life and we can have soul contentment. So, 1 Peter 2.11, we're to abstain from the fleshly lust that war against the soul. So this is a backdrop for what Paul is saying here about resolve. I mean, Peter is saying here about resolve in verse 1, the resolve that Jesus Christ had, and we studied that. And we need to be mentally prepared. And how do we do that? I did this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to review it. First of all, you have to practice confession except forgiveness. What do you have to do to practice confession? You have to be thinking about, have I sinned? You have to be thinking about that. Now, some people just have their their favorite five. Usually starts off with arrogance. I'm always good to go. I just confess on my, my arrogance, and that covers a multitude of sins. Okay, arrogance, maybe gossip, and maybe you have two or three others that are in there, and you just confess those. But but are you thinking about specific instances? Is there a conscientiousness to your confession, or are you just running through some sort of rote list? 
we practice it because it's part of our walk with the Lord, and we accept forgiveness. See, there are a lot of Christians who've grown up in a pseudo-guilt-producing environment that they don't know how to accept forgiveness. It's grace. If you don't understand grace, you'll never accept forgiveness. Remember the story I've told several times about George Meisinger when he was uh, in seminary and he was house-sitting for Pastor Theme, and Pastor Theme and family were all leaving on to go on vacation. And uh, Bob came back from the car, came back to the door and said, George, you're going to need a little money, reached in his wallet. This was about 1965 or 66, and pulled out a roll of bills and peeled off about $500 bills and gave that to George. That was a lot of money in 1966. And George said, no, 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 you don't need to give me anything. And he said, if you can't accept this, you'll never understand grace. Let me modify that story. If you can't accept forgiveness, you'll never understand grace. And there are a lot of people who just live their lives on the basis of guilt and guilt motivation. They don't know how to accept forgiveness because if they don't forgive themselves on the basis of what the Scripture says, then they won't accept God's forgiveness. And it's not a... It's not a, a... winking of the eye towards sin. It it is not being permissive towards sin. It is realizing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. So when I confess it, that's not an issue anymore, and I can be restored to that fellowship with God. We have to practice confession except forgiveness. Second, we need to hide the Word of God in our hearts. We need to memorize Scripture, not just verses. That's good for a start. Memorize chapters, Romans 8, then Romans 6, then Romans 6, 7, and 8, then John 3, John 3, 1 through 18, and then John 18 to 36, uh, Psalms, Psalm 23, Psalm 2, Psalm 1. A lot of different Psalms we can memorize, portions of Psalm 119. Memorize Psalm 118. It's the shortest Psalm in the Bible. It goes quickly. Well, we need to memorize Scripture because that's the foundation of the faith rest drill. Reading Scripture is important. I'm so I'm always so thrilled when I hear about so many people who are reading through their Bible on a daily basis, and I get questions, and I love it when I get questions. I was reading my Bible. What in the world was going on here? I get that a lot. Sometimes I say, I don't know. I've always wondered that myself. Okay. Third, we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. Fourth, we have to pay attention to how we think. Don't just go through life just sort of, I'm so involved with what I'm doing in my work that I just sort of have to get it all done. But think about how you think and why you think and what you're thinking about and all of those different things. Because if we're supposed to think like Jesus thought, we need to have the Word of God related to our thought life day in and day out. And then we just keep doing it. We drill, 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 practice, 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 and apply, 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 fail, 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 confess, 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 and start over again. That's the cycle. And we grow over time. It doesn't happen in days or weeks, but we grow. Okay. At the heart of this is understanding the makeup of man. We have a human body. We have a soul that's made up of our self-consciousness. We know who we are. I exist. We exist because God created us. We have mentality. We're designed to think, to reflect, to reason, to use logic. There's nothing wrong with that. Postmodernism, they've rejected all that as being meaningless. Uh, We have a conscience that tells us our norms and standards, what's right and what's wrong, what we ought to do. And we have volition, our will. We have to choose to do the hard things. A lot of things, the right thing is the hard thing, and it's the one thing that we really don't want to do. We're, We're born like this. When Adam was created, he was created like this. That blue circle is our human spirit. Adam was created with the human spirit, which allowed his self-consciousness to relate to God and God-consciousness. He could think the thoughts after God in his mind. He had a conscience that was completely informed by the right and wrong of God's revelation. 
and he chose until the fall to do what God wanted him to do. The human spirit is that which allows our soul to relate to God and to understand God and to understand the things of God, that is, the revelation of God. The term things of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 refers to the things which eye hath not seen and ear has not heard, but has been revealed to us by the Spirit of God. So the human spirit helps our mind to understand Scripture, helps our self-consciousness relate this to God-consciousness and the imageness of God in our soul to form our values, our norms and standards according to Scripture, and to choose to do the right thing. Now, we also have that nasty little black diamond, the sin nature. And that sin nature is constantly fighting. The issue is either we're going to walk by the Holy Spirit or we're going to walk by the sin nature. And when we walk by the sin nature, then, and this is where we are in First Peter 4, 2, then we can do the will of God. Major theme, as I pointed out in Peter. Peter says this is the will of God, that by doing good, when you are mistreated, you'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, that may not happen today or tomorrow. It's not going to happen right away. I think Vice President Mike Trent Pence is probably doing as good a job as any, is doing the will of God. He is not only an evangelical, he's a dispensationalist. He went to Emanuel Bible Church when he was in Congress the first term. A friend of mine um, in, uh, from Dallas Seminary, who was pastor of Grand Prairie Bible Church when I was pastor of Fellowship Bible Church of Irving, was the pastor of Emmanuel Bible Church at that time. And he left that church to become the president of Moody Bible Institute and then left there about seven or eight years ago because of, of uh, various back problems and went back into the pastorate. But he was solid. But Mike Pence is one of us. He may not agree 100%, may not have had as much in-depth teaching, but he comes out of the same kind of church that we would be comfortable in. Isn't that nice to know? So he's doing a good job, but he's, he's doing a good, thing, a good thing, but he's not silencing his enemies, is he, every day? One day they will be silenced. One day they will be silenced permanently in a way that is going to be miserable. God's justice will come. It may not, you may not see it. You may not be there to watch it. Then again, we may be there when that judgment comes. But we're to do good to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Now, when we're talking about mental attitude, a very important verse is Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.33 is in the middle of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about the ethical standards, the spiritual standards for the kingdom. And he's offering the kingdom to the Jews. And so he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And in previous verses, he says, don't worry, don't fret, don't... don't uh, Uh, be consumed with uh, chasing after the details of life or happiness, but instead seek first the kingdom of God. Now, that had a primary application to Israel at that time in terms of the, the offer of the kingdom, but it embodies a secondary application that is true for every age, and that is when we put God's priorities first in our life, God's going to take care of the details of our life. That's a secondary application. And that is true. But if we don't, in our own lives, orient our priorities, how we spend our time, how we spend our talent, how we spend our money, if we don't orient those things to the plan of God, then we're always going to be chasing the details of life. We're always going to be frustrated. Chasing the details of life for happiness is just following our lust patterns. So we have to focus. We have to discipline ourselves to think in terms of God's plan and purpose and his righteousness. Psalm 23, 7, in terms of my first point, which is where I ended last time, our first point in terms of developing a uh, mental attitude is that we have to be, um, we have to recognize that what goes on between our ears shapes our life. 
It is the mentality, first point, the mentality of the soul is where intellectual activity takes place, going back to the diagrams I just had up there. That's where we plan, reason, calculate, and that is where we believe. Belief is an intellectual activity. Don't ever buy into this idea that you believe with your head and with your heart. Your heart just pumps and circulates blood through your body. You believe with your head. Even in the Old Testament, if you do a word study on the word heart, where, like in this passage, as a man thinks in his heart, the heart is the seat of thinking, not feeling, not emotion. But that's how we use it often. So don't read that misuse into what the Scripture says. So the mentality of the soul is where thinking takes place. Second point is as we grow and mature in life, we learn many different things about who we are and why we're important. A lot of it's just a lie. It's what the unbelieving world has to assert in order to make life work apart from God. It's just part of their idolatrous system. So the second point is we learn these different things. So we have all this data that we bought into before we're saved. After we're saved, we still bought into it, and it's still there. The third point is that the Bible tells us there's three basic things that we have to believe if we're going to face life as God has designed it. First of all, we're all created in God's image. It's corrupted by sin, but you're still in the image of God. I'm in the image of God. When you get over to Genesis chapter 9, that's the chapter of the covenant with Noah. In that covenant with Noah, God authorizes and delegates capital punishment, death. Anyone who sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? So it will discourage criminality and murder? No, it's not preventative. It's because he has killed somebody who's in the image of God. By killing another image bearer, you are asserting a blasphemous act, you're performing a blasphemous act against God. And for that, you deserve the death penalty. You're killing an image bearer, somebody who reflects the person and character of God. That's why you commit, that's why you execute capital criminals is because they are defacing the image of God in the actions that they are performing. So we're all created in the image, in God's image. And B under this is that image has been corrupted by sin. The only solution and restoration is to trust in Christ and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Because what is happening, according to what we've studied the last few weeks in Romans 8, 28, and 29, God is conforming us to the image of his son. So Adam's created in the image of God. It gets all corrupted because of sin. When you're regenerate, God starts the process of, of healing that, of re- restoring the imageness. It's not going to get there all, all the way. He's conforming you to the image of his son. So when we get into this, we have more and more of a conflict because as a believer you have one belief system, one system of norms and standards that you bought into before you were saved, and you have another system of norms and standards that you're acquiring as you study God's Word. You have another belief system. And when you sin, you default back to your old belief system. And so sometimes you feel like you're just torn between almost two personalities. The personality of the believer who's operating on the Word, and then you sin, and all of a sudden you're going back and you're rationalizing all these things as an unbeliever and doing all of those things. And that's the conflict between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is the way man thinks in independence of God. The proverb says twice that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is joy and happiness and party all the time. Is that right? No. There's a way that seems right to man, and the end thereof is death. Divine viewpoint is the sum total of everything revealed in the Scripture based on God as creator. Then God, Then it's based on God as redeemer, and that he is the justifier. See, initially we have to understand we're created by God in his image. Then he's the redeemer and justifier. And then 
he must become the focus of the thinking in our lives. And for this, we go to a great chapter in Scripture, Isaiah 55, verse 7. Notice the command, let the wicked forsake his way. That's an appeal to your volition. When you're out of fellowship, forsake the way, turn from that way of unrighteousness, and return to the Lord, shuv, word we've studied many times in the Old Testament. That means to turn. It's not a term. It's not an emotional term. It's not talking about feeling sorry for your sins. It's just saying, I'm not going to do what my sin nature wants me to do. I'm not going to worship that idol. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to worship God. I'm going to start rearranging my priorities and go to Bible class, read my Bible every day. It's not going to happen. Tomorrow you're going to fail. The next day you're going to get up and do it right. And the next day you're going to fail again. That's how it works. The unrighteous man is to return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and will abundantly pardon. That's the grace of the gospel. Because God says that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. The word has power. It's alive. And it's active. And we're going to see that verse next time because it uses a word we've been studying already in this context. So next time we'll come back to talk about point five in terms of right thinking. Father, thank you for this time to study this evening. Focus on our mental attitude, focus on who we are, thinking through our, our thoughts, our motives, our own lust patterns. Grateful for our salvation, grateful for forgiveness, grateful for your mercy, grateful that we can turn and walk with you, forsake our wicked ways, and turn to you. Often we manifest that simply through confession each day. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, strengthen us in our spiritual life, Strengthen our desire to walk with you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.